Okay, welcome back to Conversing Labs. This is Reversing Labs podcast where we talk to the top minds in threat intelligence, threat hunting, software assurance, and cybersecurity, of course. And so happy with us. Uh, so happy today to have our guest, Patrick Wardle, with us. Patrick, welcome. Thanks, Paul. So to be uh, chatting with you again. Yeah, really great to, to be on the podcast. Looking forward to talking to you today. So we're talking to you. You're actually in Spain right now. Um, and so uh, there's a little bit of a delay. But um, for the folks who aren't familiar with you and your work, Patrick, um, just tell us a little bit about yourself and about Objective-C. Yeah. So my name is Patrick Wardle. I am a passionate Mac security researcher. And I've really kind of put this, this passion, this love into a nonprofit called the Objective-C Foundation. And we do at, uh, currently, three main things. First and foremost, I create free open source Mac security tools, the kind of Objective-C tool suite, which a lot of you are probably familiar with, firewall products, tools to monitor, uh, microphones, detect persistent malware, that kind of stuff. Uh, also, the author of the recently published The Art of Mac Malware. Uh, it's a book describing how to analyze Mac malware. It's fully free, available online, also published by No Starch Press. Uh, and then finally, I also organized the Objective by the Sea Mac Security Conference. Uh, the reason I'm actually in Spain is that's coming up in October in a few months here in Europe, uh, in Spain. And we bring you know, top speakers, researchers from all over the world in a community-focused uh, conference to talk about the latest Mac security and iOS security uh, exploits, tools, malware, all the fun all the fun things. Yeah, you are kind of the Obi-Wan Kenobi of uh, Mac, uh, malware and Mac, <laughs> Mac security. Um, uh, but Wait, isn't he dead? <laughs> I was, was going to say, I'm not making any you know, predictions about how this is going to turn out. But that is really kind of what, what you're known for, not just Mac security, but but over the, over the years, you've discovered a lot of really um, interesting kind of uh, vulnerabilities or, you know, malicious code lurking in otherwise kind of um, uh, benign seeming applications. I think the last time we spoke was back in 2020, you had discovered a couple really serious um, bugs in the Zoom application right at the onset of the pandemic when pretty much everyone, their mother was using Zoom for everything. <laughs> so this is kind of your, this is your background. And um, yeah. how did you get interested just in, in working on the, um, you know, Mac platform, obviously as a, you know, threat uh, person, most of what's out there is Windows-based. So how did you get interested in Mac? Yeah, that's a great question, Paul. And it's kind of fell into it almost by accident. So, you know, uh, in a prior life, uh, my younger days, I was working at the National Security Agency, the NSA, where I was a malicious code analyst and also then working on creating, let's just say, offensive cyber capabilities. Uh, when I left, I went to join a, uh, help mm -hmm. start a company and I wanted to be able to use the same foundational skills, reverse engineering, tool writing, but not stepping on any toes, right? You don't want to piss off the NSA. And so I said, hey, there's this kind of like new, at least to me, platform. Uh, it's OS X at the time, right? Kind of not even Mac OS. And I could see its popularity was increasing. And I said, cool, like if I transition to this, because at the NSA, I was doing only Windows research and work that, you know, I won't be, you know, stepping on anyone's toes, but I can use the same skills, uh, you know, analyzing malicious code, writing tools, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so in retrospect, it was a very auspicious decision. And I, I have the NSA indirectly to, to thank for that. Um, but that's really how I got involved and interested in the Mac OS platform. Very quickly, I saw this need, this 
this, there was this gap for uh, especially security tools. The, yeah. the story I always like to tell is I had a, a friend in Hawaii. He was a surfboard shaper and his Mac computer got hacked. Uh, he was, you know, adware, there was pop-ups, really kind of standard stuff. And he said, hey, Patrick, you you do computers, fix my stuff, right? This is the the struggle all of us in this field face, fixing friends and relatives' computers anytime yes. something goes wrong. So I said, yeah, sure. And I and I was like, okay, well, Windows, I would download Sysinternals, auto runs, you know, see what was persistently installed. And then from that, very easily find malware. And, and so I said, okay, where's the auto runs for Mac OS? And you know, this was 2012-ish, and there wasn't one. And I said, oh, interesting. So I kind of whipped together this embarrassingly bad Python script that enumerated login items, launch daemons, launch agents, brought it back, ran it on his computer, and it, you know, uncovered the, the adware, which wasn't that sophisticated. But that to me was the kind of light bulb moment that, hey, there's a need for these tools because uh, at that time too, me as a Mac user, I wanted to say, hey, what's persistently installed on my computer? And there wasn't an easy way, a comprehensive way to uh, to do that. So that was kind of nice. And I also got a custom surfboard uh, <laughs> out of the deal. So I was like, yes. man, win-win. So yes. that's kind of the longish answer to how I got into Mac and how the focus on Mac security tools really came to fruition. Yes, for listeners, Patrick is a resident of the beautiful state of Hawaii. And um, so having a, good, having a custom surfboard, that, that comes in handy. <laughs> here in massachusetts that's doesn't doesn't have quite the same value um you can like surfboard down you know snowboarding right there's there's some surfing here just just not there's some parallels the same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. uh and really interestingly you you set this up again objective c foundation it's a non-profit so you you really set this up uh instead of kind of cynically going out there and just deciding to make a lot of money off this you set it up as a non-profit just talk about that decision yeah so from the beginning everything i, I wanted to be you know free um, and, you know, I, not everything was open sourced at the beginning, which is what we'll talk about today. And the reason why is exactly because of the topic we're going to dive into. Um, but, you know, uh, my tools are focused on uh, end users. And really, I thought that, you know, end users, in my opinion, shouldn't pay for security tools. I mean, there's been a few interesting cases over the years that have really kind of reiterated that to me. What I always talk about is deals with this smeller called Fruitfly. Uh, Fruitfly was around for about 10 years before it was discovered. It was written by this, uh, allegedly by this individual who wrote some custom malware to target Max. And allegedly what he would do is, uh, and I say allegedly because he's, you know, awaiting trial and, you know, <laughs> got to be a little careful here. Uh, he would deploy these to hack into Mac systems, deploy it, and then he would turn on the webcam to spy on individuals. Um, and a lot of his victims were, were children, which, you know, that's really just ugh, gross, right? Uh, and so, you know, to me, I always thought that if, these individuals had been using even basic security software, um, you know, something that perhaps alerts you about the webcam coming on. Uh, because what this individual allegedly would do is wait till the people were not in front of the computers, then his malware would turn on the webcam. The indicator light would come on, but, you know, they'd be in the bedroom or something. Um, and so they wouldn't see that. Uh, and he would spy on these people for, you know, over a, a decade. The FBI got involved. They went so far to set up kind of like helplines with psychologists to when they, you know, alerted the victims, the parents say, hey, you know, like your child has been spied on for the last five years. I mean, that's like emotionally, like just even incomprehensible. Yep, yep, so yeah. to me, it, uh, yeah. And I was like, from a, 
security point of view, like if they were running basic security tools, like we could have caught this a lot earlier and maybe prevented some really, you know, damaging situations. Um, and again, the malware wasn't super sophisticated. So even simple security tools. Um, and so part of the reason was, you know, a lot of people thought Macs couldn't get malware and this is, you know, Apple marketing. So there's, you know, one of the things I really always like to focus on is that, hey, Macs are computers. They're going to have malware. They're going to have vulnerabilities. But then also, hey, can we make free open source security tools so that end users can add that extra layer of protection to hopefully prevent, you know, the next reply or everything uh, in, in between. Uh, and so that was always the mission. It aligned really well with the idea of a, of a nonprofit, um, really just focus on doing community activities. Um, you know, I see a huge, the adversaries are getting very sophisticated as Macs become very prevalent in the enterprise. Um, they're targeting Macs more and more. And there's really this gap where there's not as many Mac security researchers, Mac malware yeah. analysts. So, you know, if I can share my expertise or help organize conferences to bring speakers, to bring awareness of the problem, it's really a win-win for everyone in, in the industry, uh, us as defenders. So the nonprofit seemed to be a natural fit. Um, and, you know, I have a lot of really amazing companies that sponsor that too. So, you know, I have to give a lot of credit and thanks to them as well because they recognize what we're doing. And that's kind of why this can all come to fruition. So it's really this joint effort, community focus, and uh, something I'm really proud about. That's great. So I reach out to you, Patrick, because you're doing a talk with a um, colleague and researcher at Johns Hopkins University, Tom McGuire, at the Black Hat Conference, which is next week. Um, and it's a little bit um, off your usual. I mean, again, you're best known for, for delving into Mac security issues and Mac malware. This is a little bit different. Um, and uh, the talk is called Deja Vu. And you're really talking about... Um, a pattern or uh, that you've seen of really code theft and reuse um, that might be getting missed by uh, organizations that uh, that are doing software development. So could you talk first, I guess, how you got turned on to this uh, subject? Great question, Paul. And again, uh, thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about this, because I think this is a systemic issue that's affecting the community in a negative way. And I think uh, just bringing awareness to the issue will allow us to really move forward positively and kind of squash this. Um, but, you know, again, having awareness is really, I think, what was missing in, in the first place. Um, so, yeah, my, my Black Hat talk is basically on the issue of uh, corporations uh, stealing uh, algorithms essentially from Objective-C's tools and re-implementing them in their commercial products, which is obviously not okay. And so how I stumbled across this was kind of humorous in retrospect. Uh, I'm not just a researcher, I'm a victim too. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, yeah. Like, um, And so this client said, hey, Patrick, we have some files that are antivirus flagged. You take a look, you know, is where is something more we should be worried about? And I was looking at one of them and it was one of these pop products, right? This potentially unwanted uh, software. And so I was like, ah, you know, it's good to get this out of your network, but it's, you know, it's not something that's super worrisome. But as I was looking through it, this potentially unwanted uh, uh, program, uh, it had a, it was like one of these fake security products. And it basically said, hey, we can, we can uh, alert you when your mic or your webcam is being, is being utilized. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. I was like, yeah, my tool does that too. Um, and you know, I was like, there's many ways to do this. So I'm interested in, in how they're doing that. And I started looking through their code. I was like, oh, okay, this is, this is similar to my code. And then I was like, wow, this is exactly like my code. 
Um, and we'll talk a little bit more later of what that is because, you know, there's some gray area where, you know, just because someone's using the same approach, right, they could be equally inspired or stumbled across it. But, you know, when they're using the same hard-coded constants, when their code has the same bugs from your code, it really turns into this, you know, verbatim almost plagiarism um, that really, to me, to me, crosses the line. And so that was kind of interesting, And but I kind of brushed it off. I was like, well, it's this shady company, like no surprises, like, um, you know, I'll, I'll ping them and see if we can resolve this. Um, fast forward a few years, recently, um, uh, my tool Oversight, which monitors the mic and webcam to detect things like the proof line hour we talked about, um, uh, broke. <laughs> and as you mentioned, first and foremost, I'm a security researcher. I, I do write tools, but, you know, I always say I'm not like an expert uh, software engineer. So the way I write tools um, sometimes is a little janky, very unique. And especially in the context of oversight, uh, this is especially true because macOS provides no simple way to answer the question, what program or application is accessing the mic or the webcam? So it's very easy to get a notification that the mic or the webcam has been activated, but then to determine who, what product, what application it is not. There's basically no deterministic uh, way, which is uh, unfortunate because if it's something like Zoom or you know FaceTime or Skype, that's fine. You want to allow that and move on. But if it's an unsigned piece of malware running in the background, that's like big red flag and you know will uh, show that your system has been uh, infected. And so that was Oversight's killer feature was the ability to uniquely identify what processor application. And as I mentioned, it did that in kind of a, a janky way. And I'll get into that in the talk, but basically, you know, I'm looking for mock ports. I'm like sampling the candidate process and looking for strings in the stack trays. Um, you know, I'm running Apple utilities and parsing the output from standard out, like things that are, you know, kind of hackerish, right? Like how a, a security kind of a kitchen sink approach. That. Yeah. And it worked really well, but, um, you know, it wasn't, it, it wasn't elegant. So when Apple changed some of the operating system, my tool broke horribly and I got all these bug reports and I was like, yeah, yeah, not surprising. I should, I, I should fix this. So, you know, I was kind of Googling around to see, um, what Apple had changed. Um, and I found other bug reports and I was like, man, my tool is broken everywhere. Um, but then I read the responses and people pointed out that, oh no, this is another company's product. And I was like, this is a very specific niche bug. Like, it's interesting that this other, these other companies are utilizing that. So I did some analysis on their tool and again, found out they utilize the exact approach that my tool oversight had, which at the time was closed source. So it means they had to reverse engineer it. Uh, and again, they copied it so specifically that they copied the bugs in my code. Um, you know, I, and the, the analogy is it would be like, you know, plagiarism where someone's plagiarized your writing so much that they yeah, spelling plagiarize errors, yeah. uh, spelling mm -hmm. mistakes and grammar. Yeah. And so it's kind of like, okay. So at that point I was like, there's others out there. I wrote some Yara signatures to, you know, Tech my algorithm, ran across the, the network and found some other companies. And so the end result was that I found several completely unrelated companies that had all implemented webcam and, and microphone monitoring in their commercial tools in a way that was identical to, uh, to, to oversight. And not all of them shady, you know, kind of, you know, low profile. Yeah. No, you know, like the first one I was like, ah, unsurprising with these other ones, I was like, and these are very well-respected uh, cybersecurity companies. How did you go about determining that um, 
that they that their code was uh, more or less identical to your code? What was the process involved in, in doing that? Yeah, that's a great question because I kind of alluded to the fact that there's some gray area here where if a company or a product is doing something similar, that could just be coincidence um, or even if they were influenced by your tool, like, you know, is that copying? Is that, you know, inspiration, right? Um, and so the process then became, and this is how my t colleague uh, Tom got involved. Uh, Tom is an uh, instructor professor at Johns Hopkins. Where he teaches reverse engineering, operating security. I mean, he's like just a top tier, uh, incredible human, brilliant. Um, and so I said, hey, Tom, you know, I have uh, some products and, you know, I think they're you know, verbatim copying, but, you know, I'm a little biased and a little defensive, right? It's always good to kind of bring in someone who's maybe not as vested, uh, especially when we're sure. making accusations, right? Um, and I was like, hey, can you, can we collaborate together? And basically, you know, here's my algorithm. Um, uh, you know, here's the source code for it. Here's how it looked in disassembly. Um, and then here are these, these other commercial products, right? We only have the compiled binaries. So, you know, in a debugger or disassembler. So then it became a very kind of low-level exercise where we would basically look for equivalencies, um, which, you know, in some senses seems difficult, especially some of these were written in, you know, Swift, different programming languages. Uh, you know, the equivalences actually then started to fall out really quickly. Like, for example, I would query the IO registry on macOS for specific key value pairs, which would, you know, contain the PID of one of a handful of processes that had access to Mike and webcam recently. Um, and if you Google these same strings, there's zero hits. Um, you know, similarly, uh, you know, how I parse the output from Apple's um, utility that can enumerate mock ports, because again, um, an application or a product that's talking to the mic or the webcam, whether that's FaceTime or, or malware, under the hood, there's going to be mock messages sent back and forth. So if you enumerate those messages, you can see um, perhaps who is responsible for accessing the mic or the webcam. Well, you can't do that directly. You don't have the correct permissions and entitlements, but there's command line utilities that ship with macOS that you can execute, but then you have to parse their output, right? And so there's a million ways to parse output, right? Like a real software engineer would probably use a regular expression. Patrick like goes over three characters and then looks for a comma. And then, you know, it's just very janky. But you then see this exact pers uh, parsing approach in another tool. You're like, I mean, they're not even trying yeah. to, to hide this. So once you add all of the, that cumulatively, you're right, there's these undocumented strings that, again, you know, aren't on Google, this exact same approach. And then they have the same bugs because of bugs in my code. You can make a very compelling um, issue uh, report. And, you know, especially, you know, once you're doing side by side comparison, like, you know, it's yeah. the code, the code doesn't lie. Uh, and there's really no other uh, explanation of how this was, you know, done so exactly the same other than it was uh, essentially. Okay. So you found these similarities and then presumably reach out to the, to the offending companies. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And this is where it gets really interesting because uh, you know, and I, I really, you know, talk about this uh, in my talk because it's like, okay, yeah. now what? Uh, and it's interesting because I had very different experiences um, and there's a variety of challenges, and I think we'll we'll get into this uh, more kind of talking about what can corporations do when they're approached by this. Um, you know, the good thing is most companies have mechanisms where you can uh, report intellectual property issues. You can always reach out to the security team. And so what I did was I would I wrote the first important thing is I have to realize what I want. 
And, you know, do I just want an apology? Do I want financial compensation? Do I want, you know, to name shame them? Really, what is the goal? And is there then an all of the also, above option? Hey, how can I provide? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, maybe, but you know, most D. most companies are you know not going to want to be disparaged. Let's just say D D for disparagement. Um, and and so you know, then I would spend hours putting together you know a very detailed report describing my tool, showing my algorithm, talk about the bugs in my code, the similar bugs, you know, showing bug reports on their website from their users, um, talking about the binary code side by side, um, and then I it, it would present that to them and say, hey. This is now the the best case scenario, and this happened uh, sometimes. Was that you know CEO would get involved and say, "Hey, we're super sorry. Like, put this in an email." I was like, "Wow, um, how can we fix this? You know, this is something that uh, you know shouldn't happen. We're taking proactive steps. We're gonna you know remove this from this code. Can we you know can we acquire license? How can we financially compensate you?" And that's best case scenario because it really gives the opportunity mm -hmm. for an amicable win-win resolution, mm -hmm. which I think is I think is the goal. You run into scenarios too, then especially with larger companies who, you know, if I put myself in their shoes, they're often approached by patent trolls and you know the legal team, and their default response is, "Yeah, no, we don't see any equivalency here. We're going to do an internal investigation. We didn't find anything." And that's very frustrating. Um, and, you know, then as a security researcher, you really have to think about, you know, hey, can you provide them more information? Um, you know, I had one where there was like, you know, it's us versus you. And I'm like, fair, like, I'm saying this and you're saying that. But, you know, I'm like, this is what I do. <laughs> like, I'm like, I I will stake my career on this. Like, I'm so confident in this and, and the code doesn't lie. You know, eventually they kind of come around, but you do have to sometimes realize that, especially dealing with intellectual property experts, um, yeah. you know, they might not understand yeah. exactly what's going on, right? They'll have someone that runs like a code equivalency tool across the two products and be like, it says it's 90% different. And you're like, well, obviously, but that 10% is, you know, copied verbatim and found nowhere else, right. um, you know, that's really what we're talking about. So you really have to, you know, do some negotiating and put on a hat realizing that, um, you know, who, who you're talking with. And what I found is really helpful is... It's like, you stole 100% of my stuff, but it's only 10% of your application. <laughs> that's that's kind of what you're... That's the message. <laughs> yeah, that's like kind of started. I was like, ah, come on. But you have to realize you're dealing with lawyers and, and their goal is to deflect and mitigate. Um, and so I found that, um, you know, when I kind of stepped up my game, you know, I reached out to EFF and said, hey, you know, I'm having some trouble here. Uh, they were incredible. They said, hey, we'll provide you uh, pro bono legal advice, um, yeah. which is kind of one of the things that EFF offers, which is uh, in, in, incredible. You know, and then you can go back and say, okay, hey, you know, I'm working with the FF. They're they're helping me out too. Very quickly, the 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 conversation um, changes, um, which is unfortunate. But you know, sometimes I guess you you have to you have to play the game. It's the reality of the of the legal world, which is you know, being right is is really just part of the thing. You can be right, but it's really about how much are you willing to pay to fight yeah. this, you know, yeah. and you know. How much ambiguity is there? Exactly. And yeah, and, and really, you know, talking to lawyers, and this is an important thing as well, um, you know, it's, it's, if you haven't like patented an algorithm, right, it's difficult to, you know, from a legal point of view, especially depending what market is. You know, in the EU, there's specific directives that say if you reverse engineer a tool 
create a competing product, that's illegal, right? But that's in the EU, right? There's, this is another country that might not apply. If you haven't patented the algorithm, there's also some gray areas. Uh, damages are often awarded based on, uh, or rewards are, are based on, on damages. If your tool is free, like they're like, okay, we stole and like, so really the angle too that I think is really important is optics, right? Corporations aren't going to want to be essentially called out and said, hey, you guys clearly stole from a nonprofit. Um, and so, you know, that's, I think, an angle that security researchers can play into um, for, for better or worse. It's kind of like if you want Apple to change something like, you know, bad press is the best way to do that. <laughs> um, and, you know, that's just kind of the the reality so that was also a lesson learned like kind of what angle to take like it's not like i'm going to sue you because they're going to outlawyer you and have more money it's kind of like you know do i want to publicly talk about this and i will yeah. or can we figure out a way to resolve this um so that was kind of an interesting learn learning uh, learning experience for me i would say as you think about this is it your impression that this that the lifting of your code was a decision of maybe an individual developer who had been tasked with developing these features or a top exactly. down hey you know time to market let's just borrow some of what's already out there yeah, and that's a great question because that's something I had the wrong answer to going in. Originally, you know, the title of my talk was like Evil Corpse. I was like, these, you know, I'm going to bleep myself or like stealing from me as a, you know, independent security researcher for my nonprofit, like they're greedy. Um, and then really once I kind of talked to, uh, you know, the, the, the C-level execs at the team, the developers, it really became very apparent that almost always there was an individual who have been tasked with add, adding a feature and, you know, it was like, cool, this is a good feature. We want our cybersecurity product to monitor the mic and the webcam. You know, our Windows product has this. We want parity on Mac OS. How do we do this? Um, and talking to one of the companies, they said, you know, Oversight, your tool was the only one that did that. And so, you know, the researcher, the developer who was tasked with adding this feature reverse engineered your tool um, yeah. and, and, and incorporate that. And, you know, so, and they're like, we obviously don't condone that. We're really sorry about that. It's not who we are. Um, and so that was almost the case across the board, which I think is good in a way, right? It's not like there's this grand conspiracy that these corporations are out to right. like, you know, steal from nonprofits, um, at least in the cybersecurity industry, because, you know, we're kind of in the same space here. Um, it's more that individuals, uh you know, maybe don't understand the ethics of it, or there's no repercussions. But, you know, to be fair, if I put myself in the those developers shoes, not to condone what they did, but all the companies I've worked at, um, you know, when a feature is requested, I've, no one's ever been like, how did you come up with this? Right? And, you know, I know it's, you know, and, and for me, ethically, I'm not going to steal somebody else's code. Um, but, you know, for others, maybe it's a gray area. And if the corporations aren't asking these questions, um, or enforcing that, you know, it kind of slips through the cracks. Um, and so uh, to, to answer your question, it always seemed that it was the case of uh, one misguided individual who would then ultimately be responsible uh, for that. Okay. So, I mean, the big question is, you know, for organizations out there, how do you, how do they go about figuring out if this is happening with their own code? You mentioned you wrote some Yara rules to help you find other examples of this. So I'd be interested in knowing like what's in the Yara rules. But also your situation is a little bit unique because there aren't that many programs, applications that do what yours do, right? So, um, you know, it's a, it's a thin population yeah, out there yeah. to look within. Um, 
so how how would you go about even looking? Some of the, some of the d- scenarios you described seem almost kind of happenstance, you know, like uh, OS OS ten change and it creates problems and you're googling <laughs> around, you know, and you're finding other problems that sound like that. Yeah. So how, how do you do this as yeah. a company? How do you operationalize that? That's a great question. I think there's two things to this, right? It's like, how do you look for this? And then also how to make sure that's not happening within. Um, and so part of my talk is we're well, talking about both of these. Uh, so I'm, I'm really glad you you brought that up. Uh, you know, unfortunately, I don't know of a silver bullet, a panacea approach to, to finding this. Um, so, you know, I kind of talk about the approaches that I utilize, which I think are good steps. Um, but yeah, like you said, there's, 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 not necessarily a, a really good way to do that. And so first is identifying what's unique about your, your tool. Um, and then start step one is kind of identifying competitors that might advertise the same feature capability, right? If you add something kind of new, and then six months later, you see your competitor adding the same feature, like red flag, clearly sure. not saying they, they stole it, right? They could have re-implemented or like, you know, been yeah, like maybe, maybe take a, a, a peek. Um, you know, unfortunately, other than reverse engineering, you're really not going to know. Um, and so, you know, the source code's not available. So, um, you know, what worked really effective is like matching bug reports. I don't think that's necessarily like a best approach, right? Hopefully your, your product doesn't have bugs in the first place. But for me, that worked really, really well. Um, you know, as I mentioned, and you kind of touched on again, if you can write a detection signature for your algorithm, uh, my approach in oversight, which is now uh, open source, so everyone can see, is like super. We mentioned kind of janky, very unique. So um, you can basically then write a detection signature for you know certain strings that are in your binary, and then run it virus total reversing labs. Um, any any site that has a corpus of of binaries, um, I would imagine certain companies have better ways to do, do this. But um, you know, as an individual security reacher, that was kind of my approach. So, but I think. That can still apply if you're a company and and kind of the red flags you mentioned, you see a competitor with the same approach, um, you know, maybe take a peek to to see how that's going. Um, So that's kind of like, how do you detect it, um, that it's happening to you? And this is also a good time to talk about closed source versus open source. So the only reason my tools were anticipated my next question. Yeah, go ahead. (laughs) Closed source was to... I thought make this a little more difficult. And I know obviously you can reverse engineer anything, but I thought that would be a barrier enough that people would like say, yeah, I, I can reverse engineer this to get the, the algorithm, but you know, I'm not going to do that. Where when something's open source, there's a little more gray area. And it's like, well, it's sitting here on GitHub and like that. Um, so that's, I learned very quickly is completely a you know a misnomer that um, closed versus open source. So now all my tools are are open source, um, which also then means because they're like GPL and stuff. Now if a company does use mm-hmm. this, in some ways there's maybe more legal standing to go after them because now it's like their GPL violator. And yeah, you know you still probably don't want to take that to court, but I think that's more well established uh, the, the lines that are drawn there. So. Um, that was a good learning experience to me. So as, as part of GPL, they would need to contribute back any modifications they made to the GPL code, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So it kind of, I think, it kind of articulates a little bit more what the expectations are. But again, the takeaway for me, I was like, well, people are stealing. I'm going to make everything open source because I believe that's better transparency anyways. And again, that was the only reason they were originally um, uh, closed source. Uh, so now, you know, everything's open source. So, you know, push me in that direction anyways. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. Um, and, and there is obviously so much of application development these days is relies so heavily on open source. Um, there is obviously this culture of kind of, you know, just grabbing stuff and using it and yeah. cobbling together applications based on stuff other people's written. But in this case, yeah, yeah. that code wasn't necessarily there to, to be grabbed and, and reused, right? It was closed source at the time. Um, and so I guess um, what so so lessons learned for you going forward, obviously, you you open sourced your applications and, and that creates a more clear legal framework for, you know, maintaining the integrity of that. Um, other lessons learned? Another lesson I learned, which doesn't really apply to me, but I think applies to the, the companies and corporations is just like, what can you do to make sure that this isn't happening, that developers when the organizations aren't inadvertently doing that? Because again, the lesson learned for me was that that is what was happening, right? Versus evil corp stealing, you know, from, from you know, the small nonprofit. Um, and, you know, talking to these, these, these companies who, you know, were fairly amicable once they realized, you know, that I wasn't just some patent troll, that, hey, like, let's work together to fix this. I'm really not trying to like, burn to the ground, let's, you know, professionally resolve this, um, was, you know, they said, hey, you know, we have, we have mechanisms in place to make sure open source software is inadvertently used, right? Like if something's licensed, we have the lawyers review it, we're scanning for that, which is good because they don't want to get in a position where they're using things incorrectly. Um, but they said, hey, we didn't have any mechanism in place for this. And so there's huge opportunities for educating i think the developers as i mentioned none of the companies i ever worked at like sat down and told me this was illegal or asked me where i got features from you know i knew from an ethical point yeah. of view that's stealing apparently not everyone knows that but you know i think if corporations just added that or you know when a new feature comes it's certain like very unique it's kind of just saying like hey like how did you come up with this and like you know don't steal it from other tools and talk about the implications because the problem is it puts these corporations in some legal hot water potentially, which they want to avoid. And from an optics point of view, it really puts them in an awkward Re position. Reputation damage. Yeah. Want to avoid. yeah, exactly. So, yeah. you know, if I come out and it's like XYZ is stealing from nonprofit, here's the proof, like, especially, uh, you know, because I have a platform where I can talk about this, that's something they really want to avoid. And also a lot of these companies, uh, you know, they, I believe they, they, they do like to adhere to, to ethics. They want to do the right thing. Um, and so I think there's this kind of uh, blind spot where they kind of missed out on that. And, and really, you know, so one of the lessons is what can they do? And I think there's some very easy steps, you know, like I mentioned, talk to your developers, articulate what's acceptable and not acceptable. If you're reverse engineering closed source products to re-implement algorithms, that's very gray area and, and, and kind of stay away with that. Um, because there's other options, right? Like if they reached out and said, hey, we want to license this, I would have been very open to that uh, conversation. So, um, you know, that would have been a, a more professional way and in the long run would have been uh, more of a win-win. So I think a lesson is for, for corporations to realize this can happen and proactively take steps to avoid that. And then for their benefit, that will be the best approach as well. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, you know, we teach kids in school, right? In, in in middle and high school, you know, you're learning like, here's what plagiarism is. You know, you can't take somebody else's words and represent ideas, represent them as your own. You've got to quote them and cite that, and, you know, and so on. Yeah. And so that's part of hopefully yeah, 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 part yeah. of your education as a student yeah. on how to, you know, create new uh, expression. Um, but in the development community, like you said, I think a lot of developers understand it just intuitively, but my sense is it probably isn't an explicit part of their developer education. Like, hey, don't steal other people's code and do the, yeah, represent their work as yours. 
And it is putting the corporations at risk, as I mentioned. So like it does behoove the corporations to be proactive about this, both to make sure it's not happening to them, but I would say even more so that, you know, an individual developer, you know, who you know, doesn't see this being as clear cut and black and white, um, you know, really knows, hey, this is not something we condone or support. Patrick Wardle uh, of Objective C Foundation. First of all, any um, anything I didn't ask you that you wanted to say? Uh, no, thank you again so much for giving me an opportunity. I think the fact that we're able to bring this to light is a really positive thing. Um, you know, I, I noticed some of the companies who were initially a little apprehensive about talking to me about this or addressing this. Once I was like, Hey, I'm giving a black hat talk about this. Like they really quickly changed their, their tune, which yeah. is unfortunate. I feel though I was in a position where I have a large audience. So they kind of had to take me serious where other developers who are, you know, doing as just as great work as I am, but might not have that audience don't quite have that, that pressure and maybe would just get swept under the rug. Um, so I think by bringing awareness to this problem, I think we can, Kind of hopefully squash it because it does seem to be fairly systemic. Um, but as we mentioned, with simple solutions where even corporations can implement some safeguards and, and yeah, it's a really important topic. And yeah, and we're, we're we're focusing more and more obviously on software supply chain and so on. A lot of that is about you know malicious uh, you know components working their way into yep. your applications and your environment, of course. But not only, right? And this is kind of part of the conversation yeah. as well, which has to do with, you know, the integrity and the provenance of the code that you're representing as your own. Yeah, yeah, no, and that's a really good point, too, because, you know, I remember um, uh, a case in my, so my intellectual property classes at, at Johns Hopkins, where, you know, they talked about um, people who published phone books yeah. who put fake numbers in. So if someone copied that, they could prove that was the case. And so it's like, you know, if you're developers, are you going to add bugs specifically that, you know, might not trigger, but, you know, unique wa uh, fingerprints, watermarks in your code to, to prove that. Um, and, you know, that's something I think about. I, I see a black hat talk in this, or maybe this is a DEF CON talk, actually. <laughs> Consciously. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, maybe. But now, like, after talking to you, I'm like, oh, this is a good idea. Because, again, proving the equivalency, um, especially when you're talking to the legal team, is is challenging. So, uh, you know, as a developer, again, if this happens to you, feel free to reach out. I would say prepare to have patience, especially when dealing with legal teams. But again, I'm hoping just being able to talk about this uh, more transparently will really move us all in a positive direction. We will include your contact information when we post the conversation, the Conversing Labs episode. And uh, Patrick Wardle of Objective C Foundation, the talk at Black Hat is Deja Vu uncovering stolen algorithms in commercial products. And it's this it's next Thursday, the 11th, the week from today, uh, out in Las Vegas in Black Hat. And so everybody should check it out. Patrick, thanks so much for coming on and talking to us on Conversing Labs podcast.